Kia ora koutou kato, everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and in London, with that spring-like warmth I can see behind you, Peter Bale. Yeah, Peter, I, don't have to, I don't have to wear a sweater. I'm good, Bernard, thank you. You've got a little scarf there. It's looking very stylish. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking all sort of um, wintry in Milan, but actually mm. it's like nine degrees and shitty as hell in Wellington. <laughs> Um, but uh, what made you think of Milan for that? Well, actually, you mean you mean because you're because you're so fashionable? There's that, yeah. But no, actually, um, this uh, jacket I actually bought in Milan. Um, Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then people I, think I'm the, people and think people think I'm the posh fancy one in this in this yeah. in this well, relationship. Well, <laughs> the dirty little secret is that um, just before COVID, I, I went there on a um, reporting trip. Uh, that um, meant I went into one of these Zara stores, which yeah, yeah. would be very Fast fashion. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And it was bloody cheap. It was like, yeah. you know, really, really, really cheap. Um, and all very um, fun and stylish. And that was the last time I sort of went anywhere. So mm. if I put on the jacket, I can imagine I've gone traveling somewhere, which I haven't. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Good idea. Use your imagination. It's a much, it's a much cheaper way to, to go traveling. And there's less... Um, you know, carbon emissions. Fewer, fewer right. emissions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Bernard, but, you've had quite a you've had quite a busy week this week. Um, oh yeah, yeah. With a very, you know, I mean, you've got the budget, you've got the emissions. Um, you know, New Zealand's been the epicenter of everything, and we've got an Australian election this week as well. Oh yeah, no, there's there's so much uh, action around, and I sense there's an element of exhaustion again around Wellington. At least it's been mm -hmm. three weeks of hammering away. The whole place has been fine tuned and. And designed really to deliver this document that came out at two o'clock yesterday, Budget 2022, which um, got the usual song and dance about how this was um, a well-being budget and how this was. Oh, but uh, apparently it's a backwards budget, isn't it? Or well, is it forwards, sideways, sideways, and sideways? Yeah, down? it's the block of cheese budget, actually. Uh -huh. um, because I see twenty-one. Mark uh, Grant was talking about twenty-one dollars for a tasty, tasty block of cheese. Well, exactly. Mind you, Grant looks as though he has quite a lot of cheese in his. Well, uh, this, yeah, no, fridge. I think he probably would. He could do without being on the cheese. Uh, same with me too. I'm, I've gone dairy-free sort of, um, mm. but I, I like a good block of tasty, and it's costing upwards of twenty-four, twenty-five dollars here for a block of tasty kilogram cheese, and um, you might recall. Probably not, but there might be a few um, listeners who recall that um, back in 2003, when Michael Cullen was um, uh, putting up a budget, he slightly adjusted the tax thresholds to give people a tax cut. And everyone worked out within about five minutes that most people were going to get like five or six bucks a week. Mm. So it was called the block of cheese budget. And <laughs> this budget is for effectively 12 weeks, people who are earning less than 70,000 and aren't getting the winter mm. energy payment will get 20 cheese payment, yeah, cheese payment a block of cheese yeah. a week <laughs> for and will 12 it be blocks of cheese. Che oh, no, Cheesedale. No, no, that's got the little wrappy stuff on it. No, no, no. We're talking proper block of cheese. The ones yeah, but, where... You know, we, we, we all grew up with um, Cheers and Dale. Cheers and Dale. Know our oh, cheese. oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, and those were the days when like two million people would watch a single program because there was just one channel. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. yeah. I think, it was, I think those were the days, really. I think we need to we, we need to regress back to 
the glory days. Vietnam. New Zealand had, a, had the glory days, exactly, when we had Chesendale and we sent our sinuses to Arizona. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and Philip Sherry. You know, I think we need to, you know, the, that was New, Zealand, you know New Zealand didn't worry about, you know, woke things then. We, got, we had it all sorted out. Yeah. Like Actually, dairy board, um, meat board. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Philip <laughs> Sherry, just a little segue, Philip Sherry um, uh, passed on right, last year, actually, and mm -hmm. I had the most amazing experience. I went and spoke to the um, <laughs> Bay of Plenty District Council about, um, about, <laughs> about house prices and interest rates, uh, but also climate change. And there, lo and behold, as one of the district councillors was Philip Sherry. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, it was most disconcerting. The man I'd spent my entire childhood mm. watching the news was there yeah. listening to me talk about our president. And Dougal Stevenson, yeah. Yeah. Now, we better talk about this budget, but oh, because yes. I, was, I, I read your commentary on it, and I also read our friend Patrick Smelly's commentary, commentary on it, which essentially said that it wasn't political enough, that it was sensible, possibly a little too sensible, and not political enough. Tell, tell us what... What yeah, it was a balance that Grant Robertson was trying to uh, go along, which was to spend a bit of money. So it looked like he was responding to the squeezed middle, which mm. is uh, the now He's famous squeezed middle after all that cheese, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and and he so he had to give them something. Sorry, so what he gave them joke. was was the block of cheese per week for twelve weeks, so three hundred and fifty dollars, mm -hmm. uh, but no more because Treasury said you know you can't afford any more than that. And also, he was understandably trying to avoid look like he, he was splashing the cash and driving up mm. inflation with all the spending. Um, and so the, the opposition got to have their cake and eat it too, or their block of cheese and eat it too, where they could accuse the government of splashing the cash, but then at they're the same time, but they're not doing <laughs> enough. So what do you want? Yeah. So um, it was one of those budgets where the only political thing was quite a small thing, uh, which... I think most people would realise is probably not going to make a difference. Nicola Willis had the um, classically... Uh, yeah, I, I assumed that one of the reasons we started late was that you were making her a delicious gin and tonic. Actually, that would have been a good idea. Mm. That would have warmed us up a, a little bit. Mm. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it. But um, she really had the best political line of the week um, on, the, on Budget Day when um, she came out and said the $350 of cash, which pe some people are going to get, about 2.1 million people get, would be just enough for a one-way ticket to Australia. <laughs> oh, that's not is, bad. That's very good. It's really good because some other people have called it the brain drain budget, which is, you know, there's a lot of truth in this in that for a lot of young New Zealanders between the age of 25 and 35, they've just spent two years in lockdown. They may have missed their overseas experience. And they're looking at huge demand for their skills mm. from mm. Australia. They can get a 30 to 40% pay increase, go there. And the big difference, the and if, well, they could afford a house <laughs> on the fringe of town and maybe afford something in a sort of regional um, city or town. But actually the main thing in Australia is that you can afford to rent. Um, and that's the big difference in the last two or three years is that rental costs in central Melbourne and Sydney have dropped significantly relative mm -hmm. to New Zealand and particularly Wellington. So anyone stuck here today in Wellington on May the 20th, uh, wrapped up all nice and warm from the southerly, which is blowing through, um, and realizing that they're having to pay six, $700 a week for a one-bedroom flat that might be mouldy, can go to sunny Sydney or Brisbane and get for the same job, get paid 40 or 50% more mm -hmm. and be able to save $150 a week on the rent and get a better 
place that probably isn't moldy. So this whole sort of brain drain idea is, is catching on in particular because of the, um, uh, this sort of big relative shift in rents in the last yeah. couple of years. And you can see it coming through in the numbers. In the last two months, there's been about 9,000 young New Zealanders who have uh, jumped, on, jumped on a plane, including Peter, of course. Include, exactly, exactly. <laughs> young New Zealanders. Yeah, yeah. No, That's I'm, right. I'm, but I, I think I'm very much like the Muldoon thing about people moving to Australia, raising the IQ of both countries. Uh, um, but he was a genius that, politician, by the way. Yep. What was so? If I looked at that budget, it seemed extraordinarily conservative. You know, I mean, one of the points that you made that uh, I actually hate that phrase "splash in the cash" because it's just some sort of tabloid bollocks that you see in the paper sometimes. But um, this isn't a profligate government, it would appear. You know, the you know government government borrowing is relatively low. I, th I think it was you that said that the 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 um, the uh, you know investment in infrastructure was almost embarrassingly small. Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of weird thing that the opposition is able to say things like splash the cash or that the government is, quote, addicted to spending. And it sort of registers. People go, oh, yeah, well, it's a Labour government. So, of course, they're a tax and spend government. That makes sense to me. But it isn't. My, my preconceived biases have been confirmed. Yeah. Uh, and um, and everyone moves on. Well, actually, have a look at the numbers, which I do for, do for a living, and and also listen to the, you know, the, the real experts on being fiscal conservatives and assholes who stop um, politicians and central bankers. Did you say fiscal conservatives and assholes? Yeah, the, well, the, the IMF, the International Monetary uh -huh, Fund. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, it depends where you are in the world, whether you think the IMF is a good idea. Um, if you're in Sri Lanka or actually in Russia, Russia did a particularly uh, had a particularly nasty experience with the IMF after the 1998 mm -hmm. um, uh, bond default. But the IMF, you know, they, they go around the world looking at uh, government's accounts and the state of the economy and then making a judgment, essentially saying to the world's investors and lenders, yes, these guys are not going to waste your money. They're not going to blow up in a, um, a debt default. You can be safe lending your money to them. So when the IMF came to New Zealand and put out a report in the last week that said that New Zealand was being fiscally uh, responsible, that in fact debt is due to trend down, that New Zealand's debt is much, much lower than other countries with a AAA credit rating, I sort of called it out. And um, this hasn't made the six o'clock news and, and it hasn't really made it through to the public. But the opposition's claim that this is a profligate um, a government that is wasting money and pumping up inflation by spending too much is simply wrong. Because when mm. you actually looked at this budget, um, the fiscal impulse is actually a contraction. It's time. It's exactly that was. I was. It was really striking to see that in your uh, carca this week because it, it just it it doesn't use it. I mean, it, it seems that they're being too conservative, and and that's perhaps is that perhaps the most political aspect of it that they've decided yeah, I mean, to be conservative it, for this last period of a Labour government before there's an election. Yeah, it's like Labour is continually having to prove itself to the yes. public and to the opposition that they are, can be fiscally responsible. When you actually look at the numbers going back uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, Labour, the Labour governments, um, aside from that 1984 to 1990 government, which um, for a lot of people, they still remember that period. But after that, in the MMP era, Labour governments have actually repaid more debt and have run surpluses for much longer and bigger than national governments. 
Um, so, just how, how does this how does this leave New Zealand? So in the UK at the moment, inflation is now nine percent. Mm. They've got extremely high government borrowing, but actually the CBI, the, the the Confederation of British Industry, this week met and had Rishi Sunak offer business uh, tax cuts to come, and it was very interesting hearing hearing an old 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 uh, uh, mucker of mine, Tony Danker, who's the head of the CPI, on the radio yesterday saying actually the thing that they really want is the government to tackle the cost of living increase now, mm. to increase benefits, to and it was a very striking. Uh, mm. thing for business to stay. I mean, yes, they did want future, you know, uh, help with investment, but how is New Zealand getting hit at the moment by this commodity price spike, by inflation? And is that why, is that one of the reasons why they're being so conservative, that they're expecting a, a very nasty uh, spike shortly? No, I, I think that the government is really worried that if they spent more money, they'd get accused of being profligate. When actually, mm. um, there's a good argument to say, Right now, low to middle income New Zealanders, particularly those on precarious incomes, maybe on benefits, who are renting in particular, are really doing it tough. And it's interesting, the reaction to the budget in the last 24 hours from what you call the social sector, the, um, the various groups who campaign on child poverty and on housing, um, the people running the food banks, very, very grumpy about how the government hasn't yeah. uh, given, given enough help to people on low incomes. And uh, the government, I think, next year will have to really do a lot more, A, to keep their own supporters happy, but B, you're right, um, you've got a lot of people in, in business and in uh, retail going, well, no one wants to buy my stuff because they don't have any money. We've mm. got to give them mm. some money. <laughs> and that, that's the fundamental problem we have with <laughs> our um, economies and our and the way our version of capitalism has developed is that increasingly more and more of the wealth and the income is being focused on those who have assets, and in particular property and shares. And it's getting piled up and piled up, and it's just being stuck in a bank account. It's not mm. being spent. <laughs> Whereas the people who do who spend 100% of whatever they get in are getting relatively less and less. And in many cases, um, they're getting actually less, is that, particularly is after inflation. So let, let's address the politics of this, Bernard, because I've, you know, I've for years heard criticism from uh, Labour supporters, essentially, that, that, the, that this government has got a tin ear to their own people, to their own people or to the needs of, to the, needs of the weak in society to some extent. Is that the biggest risk? To Jacinda Ardern as you go into that next election, that in fact the various, you know, whether it's the Kiwi Bill stuff, what it, uh, Three Waters, that these things are just not going to be going to be achieved. Yeah, and that's one of the risks that all of the natural supporters, the enthusiasts who go and knock on the doors, all of those um, activists who you know have drunk the Kool Aid and are helping you out on the hustings, suddenly they go, ah, well, what was the point of that? Bugger it, I'm mm. just going to stay at home. And that is one of the risks, and but it's not a risk in an electoral sense in that these people have anywhere else to go. Now, there are a bunch of people who left Labour and went to the Greens at the last election because of their unhappiness with what mm. the government hadn't done. But even over this last term, they're starting to realise, ah, oh, well, I put my vote with the Greens, but they just do the same as Labour and actually can't well, change Labour at all. Well, it's extremely good segue, Bernard, because you know, this, the, the, emission, the emissions reduction plan isn't really an emissions reduction plan, is it? Yeah, no, I wrote a piece on Monday saying that effectively it was a late, tame and, and skimpy um, emissions reduction plan. Got to remember that the government has a fund of $4.5 billion to play with to do some really serious things, like, for example, make public transport free. 
which by the mm. great way the Greens have argued for and the government again said no to. In fact, all they did um, in the budget was extend the current half price yeah. for two months. Which and seems to have been remarkably effective, actually. Yeah, well. no, it's been really good in Auckland to increase usage of uh, buses and trains, which, of course, took a hit during COVID. People didn't want to be in a in a, a tin can with a bunch of others. Um, that, that's coming back now. But, of course, if you're going to solve your congestion problems, you've got to get people out of cars and into buses and trains. And one way to do that is to make it free. And the beauty yeah. of it is that effectively it's a, a just, just transition measure. You're saying we're going to make um, driving petrol cars more expensive to try and get people to drive them less and belch less emissions. And one way you can do that is to get people out of their cars and into buses. And one of the dangers with putting up the price of petrol to solve your climate problems is that you punish the poorest the hardest. But when you make public transport free, you're effectively mm, um, mm. giving a, a, a concession, a boost to people on the lowest incomes by helping them to get their public transport and get, get to work and school and whatever much cheaper. And um, it's a perfect uh, solution uh, for- It's this. not regressive. No, exactly. <clears throat> and apart from anything else, particularly in Auckland, um, the buses were running at below <clears throat> capacity for the last couple of years during COVID. You get them back up to capacity and then you can start to build out your network, make it more reliable, make it more frequent. Yeah. And suddenly people are going, well, actually, I can take the bus to work because I can rely on it. And that's, um, that takes a lot of work, but you've got you to get people back into the buses and trains to, to make it work. And I think there's a, there's a lot of frustration in the green movement and also in the sort of um, uh, pro-poverty um, uh, reduction, you know, social activist class who were behind Labour going, what was the point of voting these guys in? All they do yeah. is um, focus on low debt and don't even do the most obvious things like um, increase the incomes of the people who need it the most uh, just after an inflation spike. For example, the benefit increases that came through on April the 1st, they were decided more than a year ago, well before the spike came through. So there's been nothing new really for mm. those people. Well, on what's the James Shaw doing? Because, because you know, I think, uh, did I see that, you know, there's, there's basically very, there's very little in in there, <clears throat> you know the the carbon sinks in forestry was a was a was a big thing, but it's not you know none of this seemed to be real, none of it seemed to be real, none of it seemed to be dramatic enough to meet the moment because I, I have a sense internationally at the moment um, that we're going to reverse on climate change partly because because of the need for more fossil fuels to offset the the Russia crisis, and you know this is not looking good. You know there's, there's these things called carbon bonds which are these enormous projects that are being dusted, dusted off, whether it's in the North Sea or elsewhere, to unlock um, fossil fuels and get, and, and, and get them out while we still can. And, and New Zealand just seems to be kind of fiddling a little bit there at the moment. I'm just, what, what does this mean politically, Bernard, with people like James Shaw, who I think you know I think is a bit of a wimp? Oh, I think that's <clears> a bit strong for James, but it's certainly he had to swallow a rat this week. Um, when he stood up in front of uh, everyone in the um, press gallery in Parliament to announce this historic um, document. I mean, really, it was, it's been a good 10 years in the making to bring through the Zero Carbon Act, which um, he understandably, you know, claims credit for. But actually, when you look at the action that the government's taken in its first emissions reduction plan, just 1.1 billion of that 4.5 billion is being spent in the next two years. Only two and a half thousand cars uh, involved in the first 
clunkers for um, electric car swap deal, no support for e-bikes, no real extra money uh, to really help poor people get into buses and trains, no real action to um, switch a lot of these motorways and roads from cars to cycling and walking. Uh, because ultimately, this is the way you make things happen fast and cheap. Mm. You essentially say to people, you can't park there on the side of the road anymore. Uh, that is for cyclists. Uh, you're going to have to pay more to park your car or not have a car. Excuse, excuse me, Bernard. I've got, a, I've got a Mr. Mike Hosking on the line who's just yelling at me through the... You know. Well, interestingly, for the first time in a long time, I actually agreed with Mike Hosking when he came out with a fairly, fairly typically grumpy opinion piece saying, what is the point of the Greens? Mm. Well, then, I mean, this is what I mean. I just, I just, I, I don't know, Bernard, I, I, I do, I, I personally kind of veer slightly that oh, in, into that realm that it doesn't really matter what New Zealand does because it's too small and it's not going to have any effect and it's got strong, west, strong westerly winds and, you know, pollution is a problem, but it all blows away and we can just continue driving <laughs> our utes. But, you know, when, when the water, when the water is, you know, is, is lapping at my uh, clifftop home in Hearn Bay, you know, I might regret that. Yeah, yeah. No, um, the, the guts of it is, I mean, you know, in a scientific technical sense, um, where, you know, 10 coal-fired power stations in China uh, as in terms of the, the world. And if you wanted to take that approach, you could. The trouble is uh, we'd have to uh, essentially isolate ourselves from the world because mm. there is no way, even within a couple of years, that we'll be able to trade with the European Union or with the United States, even though the US is much worse than us, they will use it as an excuse to say, oh, we, we, can't, buy, yeah. we can't buy, buy that you know, nasty uh, climate emissions, bad boys, um, New Zealand stuff. The Australians, by the way, better watch out. Otherwise, they're going to yeah. be in trouble as well. And uh, that's, the, that's the guts of it. And apart from anything else, there is an opportunity too. If we can very quickly move to low emissions vehicles and move to renewable the cost of it is significantly lower yeah, than absolutely. the cost of fossil fuels. So, so Bernard, what does, let's, let's, uh, from, again, from a political point of view, where is the courage and why isn't it there? You know, you've got, you've got a prime minister who's an incredibly effective communicator. Nobody remembers, you know, even back to October, that how, how good she's been over the last 18 months with the COVID program. <clears throat> what's, what's missing? Is it your argument that MMP combined by the Roger Douglas restraints on... You know, it has, just means they cannot be as courageous as they need to be. I think um, both Grant Robertson and Jacinda Ardern are essentially fiscal conservatives. <laughs> they are political conservatives in that they are very nervous about getting out in front of the public and also of alienating what I call middle New Zealand, those median mm. voters. And we're talking, if you wanted to put a, you know, um, a Mondeo man sort of lens on it. Who, who are who is Middle New Zealand? Well, it's a, a tradie in the suburbs with a double cab Ute, and uh, the uh, the partner has a Toyota Camry. They've got two kids. They've got a backyard, and the dream is to have the boat in the uh, in the drive next to the house and to go on a holiday yeah. to a beach a beach batch. Now that's fine. But if you're it sounds a government, pretty bloody good to me, Bernard. I know, I know. That's the that's the dream. <laughs> it could be you. It could be you. Uh, Can but, I have a jet ski in that scenario as well? Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. You have the double cab ute with the jet ski on the back, 
or the or the yacht. Uh, uh, exactly. The jet, well, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly. liking this very much. And yeah. it's not an electric jet ski. It's one of those. Yeah. I think I think people might remember that I was very very irritated not to win the Coast Guard lottery this year, having bought <laughs> you know about four hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's the sort of middle New Zealand you've got to aim at. And if you go out there and say, hey, I'm going to tax you out of your double cab ute. I am going to stop you from parking at the centre of town. I am going to um, make you... Well, move. nobody wants to go to the centre of town anyway because it's Auckland. It's, it's a hellhole uh, full of, yeah, you know... It, it is full pretty of, tough full, right of, now. full of people sleeping in the streets and, and, and being yelled at by, <laughs> by gospel gospel. Bashes. That's true, and they've got one of those little amps next to them, and yeah. they're playing yeah. something pretty awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now there's an element of that, and so they are conservatives. Remember that their background. Yeah, it's very a... interesting, Bernard. What do you? What, I mean, I reckon you should write this again because I'm mm. still not sure. Somebody's somebody's mentioned on the on the um, on the uh, on the on the thing about about Jacinda's, you know, the, the shine going off her and so on. But she is very effective. She is very well attuned. And I think historically, certainly in the last two years, seems to have been very well advised. But that idea of the kind of conservative straitjacket that uh, New Zealand is under, partly because of MMP, partly because of the Roger Douglas reforms and the you know, debt levels and so on, I don't think it gets told enough or explained enough in some of the sort of more reactive um, political reporting and the descriptions in New Zealand of this, the horse race between Luxon and um, and Jacinda, you know, this is these are quite interesting fundamental sort of fundamental issues that make New Zealand maybe a bit more like Denmark again, where you've got you know MMP and so on, and you've got these kind of um, you know almost indivisible lines between social democrats and Christian democrats. Yeah. Well, this is the the sort of um, the challenge you're seeing now from. Uh, the sort of more progressive wing of the sort of left wing movements globally is they're going, hang on a minute, our Labour parties, if you like, have been captured by an elite who mm. assume that it's always about keeping debt and interest rates low, that the main aim of a government is to reduce its own size and to essentially whittle away at the edges of the welfare net and do the very best to create a reasonably free market, um, free capital movement, uh, opening up to the globalised um, trading system world. And definitely yeah. Jacinda Ardern is part of that. You know, she's she's um, she's worked at the UN. Uh, Helen Clark is very much part oh, of well, that. Oh, well, so we're getting back to the, you know, to the to the Helen Clark global government conspiracy as well. Well, yeah, I, I don't think that's um, completely true to an, ex to an extent, but there is an element <laughs> no. of it. Um, and, and those on the sort of green left are becoming increasingly disillusioned mm. with the likes of, you know, the Tony Blairite um, third way Bill Clinton idea that, the most powerful force in the universe is the bond market. And the best thing you can do is cut benefits, win over um, your middle voter by essentially kicking down. And um, that is, um, I think, one of the risks longer run. It's not there yet, but that Labour and the Greens lose supporters after you know six years in power and realizing that actually not much has changed. Yeah, no, I think I we need to. I just, I think you. I, I don't. I'm not reading this from 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 other people at the moment. Mm. Partly because I think, you know, there's <clears throat> the, um, you know, a lot of the people in the press gallery have have very short headlights. 
you know, yes. you've got the halogen halogen beams. I'd just like to say to Pat Clark, who's on here, that uh, not only did I have um, flat white yesterday, but I also had avocado, and I rode my cycle around bicycle around London. So, oh. you know, I think we're <clears throat> we're going to be using little cargo bikes to deliver our um, coffee and our avocado, and it's, and it's more fun. And our halloumi. Thanks very much, Pat. <laughs> Halloumi and avocado on toast. That's quite good. It's, it's exactly, exactly. Right. I mean, it's not. It's definitely not. You know. Um, and if you're feeling last thing to have. exactly, if you and if you're feeling a bit, you know, hairy chested and in need of some meat, a bit of bacon, you know. Yeah. Well, um, when I'm good. when I'm when when halloumi reaches twenty one dollars a, a a pack, then I'm going to be in real trouble. Ah, well, avocado are really cheap at the moment because all the Mexican restaurants were closed for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so um. But you're right. Guacamole, um, Bernard. Bernard, just right. I do need to, to write that story. Yeah, yeah. We'll just keep. It's, it's, I think sometimes these tropes need to be not so much troped out, but um, we, they need to be. You know, the sort of the reasons for some of these things need to. We need to be reminded of. I, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with a, uh, a a journalist and businessman here, and <clears throat> one of the points that he made was that. that which again sounds blindingly obvious when you when you hear it, except that we're in the middle of it, and this is this inflationary paradigm is not something that most financial journalists have experienced. Uh, he made the point that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor here, was born in 1982, I think 1986, something like that. He's, he's about 38 or 40. He's never experienced an inflationary environment. Mm. barely experienced a recession. He might remember the, you know, one of the British recessions. He might remember the GFC because he was a banker at that time. But very few people have experienced what we're going through at the moment with inflation, with costs uh, going up. And they don't necessarily know how to react or think about it. Yeah, even the central well, bankers. Exactly. And, and you're right that people haven't really done the mental work of trying to understand what the heck's going on here and why it's different. And to understand the experience of high inflation and understand how it was dealt with in the past, and also, um, you know, why it's quite different from low inflation. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah, no, I'm old, old and grumpy enough to have um, been through that. And uh, I, I think it is worth uh, sitting some of the youngsters down and saying, actually, this is something we've seen before. It can be beaten. And mm. uh, it may not be here forever. I'm still in team transitory. Uh, but as, as the Fed as the Fed said this week, you know, it could be quite painful. I mean, you, 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 we're, we're old enough to remember Paul Volcker, um, you know, squeezing squeezing interest rates, squeezing squeezing the United States to to a really extraordinary de degree to squeeze out inflation. Yeah, uh, and that will be one of the challenges. How <clears throat> how how hard. They can squeeze until the pips squeak and, uh, and then be okay with, for example, a big slump in the markets. So one mm. of the really interesting things said this week by one of the Fed governors is that the Fed was determined to fix inflation and wouldn't care yeah. if there was some sort of nasty slump on financial markets. Mm. For a whole generation of investors, they've just assumed that whenever there was a, a downturn, that the Fed would jump in, cut interest rates or print mm. some more money and there would be a bounce back. That's why they're forever buying the dip. It's because they think there's always going to be a bounce back. Now, we're, we're now down 19, 20% for um, uh, the global stock markets. Once you go past 20%, you're officially in a bear market, mm -hmm. which for most uh, investors, they've never seen before. That's right. And, and 
this will be the real test, I think, in the next few months, particularly if we have another one of these bad weeks like we had this week, where on one day the NASDAQ uh, fell 4.5% or so, which um, I got a feeling in the next uh, few months there is a risk of one of these bad days. It'll be something like a um, some sort of real, really bad COVID COVID piece of news discovery from china or something yeah and it'll trigger yeah and and, or you know um some some russian news site will talk about someone taking the nuclear football suitcase to putin or something um and and you'll have a a really big drop in the financial markets and also a freezing up of some of the um more obscure ends of the credit markets which we saw Mm. a little hint of when the crypto thing went off last week so that that will be interesting and then what does the fed do and uh, my my feeling is that that they will all co- always come in and rescue their mates. Yeah, you've been saying that for a while, and you and you haven't necessarily been correct. I think Bernard about inflation, although I'm not sure that we could have seen could have foreseen completely the degree to which inflation is now being driven by by the Ukraine crisis and by Russia. Yeah, you know, the, the, this is you know the, the Fed can talk about putting up rates and trying to contain inflation in the United States, but so many of the factors are uh, external. You know, they're not factors in the U.S. economy itself. These are external factors buffeting all economies. Yes, and it's not just the Ukraine war. So the Economist has a very strong uh, lead story this week on the global food crisis, essentially saying we're on the verge of tens of millions of people starving to death because not just the shock to the uh, global wheat markets from uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, blocking or stopping uh, exports from those Black Sea ports, one of which has been just been completely wrecked. Um, uh, but also, there are droughts in uh, yeah. Latin America, uh, mm-hmm. big issues in India. And we all forget, of course, that India is the second largest grower of wheat in the world. Yeah, and this week, India. and this week, banned banned the export of wheat. Exactly. Yeah. And we saw the wheat prices go up another 6%. They're now up almost 50% since the beginning of the year. And uh, this is putting intense pressure on some of these countries that were very reliant on Ukraine and Russia for that wheat, places like Ethiopia, um, Egypt, got Syria, places like this, where um, there is going to be intense political pressure, apart from the, the sheer human element of people starving to death. Um, and so, you know, Sri Lanka, uh, for example, this week under enormous pressure to the point where the prime minister said on Wednesday they had one day's petrol left yeah, because they couldn't afford to buy it. And well, that's, know, when... that's another way to go carbon zero. Uh-huh. I know that's, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty cold turkey. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean... The, but the stress... I, think, I think, you know, I'm just going to segue to the war on this because I think mm, this is mm, one mm. of the critical issues about about how long public support in many countries lasts for the war in Ukraine or the resistance to Russia, that that some of these things are starting to bite. You know, uh, I mean, fortunately, Biden so far has managed to explain away some of the petrol price rises and that kind of thing in the United States. But I have a feeling some of these critical issues of of life and death and food and so on are going to start to undermine the level of public support that there is for um, for, for backing Ukraine against Russia. Yeah. When it gets it's a, hard. 
Yeah, and particularly because, you know, you're starting to see some people try to play others off against each other. <laughs> and Turkey's decision this week to uh, block, uh, at least initially, the applications yeah. from Finland and Sweden to join NATO, essentially to try and um, teach them a lesson for being nice to the PKK Kurdish guerrillas at various points, um, gives you an idea of, you know, when the stress is on, people tend to turn inwards and they also try to, you know, do things like play others off against each other to try and get their own advantage and and that sort of thing. And uh, they, the pressure of oil and food in the global economy combined with what we're seeing in China, where they're in an awful mess. This is the, one of the, the sort of biggest economic news of the week this week was some shockingly uh, weak numbers out on Monday from the mm. Chinese economy, showing that retail sales collapsed in April in uh, China, that um, uh, consumer confidence and factory production too really got a, got a hit. And, uh, and in the United States, the, the other sort of big news to say that uh, consumers are under a lot of stress and that's starting to flow through to the global economies is Walmart came out with a profit mm. warning on Wednesday night, which said um, this inflation <clears throat> is not only increasing our costs, but it's now starting to affect the sales to our consumers. So mm. Walmart's essentially one of these companies that... Yeah, that's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a safe bet. Yeah, and effectively, it employs mm. a lot of people, doesn't pay them much, and then sells a lot of stuff to those very same people. Yeah. And so when those people are feeling stressed, they're not buying the stuff from Walmart. And so Walmart's shares fell the most. They'd fallen since 1987. And then the very next day, Target, which I suppose you could say is a Walmart clone or something cl close to it, um, gave a similar sort of profit warning and shares fell 25%. So the pressure on the global financial markets and on the, the sort of real world of, you know, can I fill my car with petrol? Uh, can I afford to get to get food this week is just really starting to put mm. the put the blowtorch to the belly, as um, Paul Keating would have said. Oh, uh, blowtorch to the belly and swallowing a rat. Swallowing oh, a rat was an oh. extremely good expression, may I say. I, I, I don't think I'd heard that one before. And it reminds me of when I complete when I came back to New Zealand and I completely misunderstood what a hospital pass was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's... that's but I do bit... know all about going hard and going early now. Uh, yeah, so, um, yes, I mean, often, if you want to explain something in New Zealand, you just got to use a rugby analogy, <coughs> sadly. Um, hospital So, pass... Bernard, in my... Just, just going, yeah, going back, to, going back to Ukraine, I tried in the thing this week that I did for the spinoff to um, uh, do it with a tiny bit of humour because there's, you know, there's not a lot to laugh about. But I've been following a fabulous person on Twitter uh, who tweets under the name of Darth Putin, at oh, KG, yeah. Darth Putin KGB. It's a great and every story. day he yeah. puts up a puts up a, a, a statement which I'll just read, which is a, a, a sum up on the wall, which is weeks twelve, months three, victories zero, sanctions infinite, economy little emoji of a toilet, generals hiding, <laughs> Kiev and Kharkiv Ukrainian, army advancing in reverse, Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I remain a master strategist. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he is excellent. And his um, his handle is Darth Putin KGB. KGB, yeah. KGB. Yeah, it's very, very, very good. And I, you know, I, I have that in the mix of in the mix of you know all of the serious things and the and the important things. Um, and I, I also I just put I put in that uh, spin-off thing, but some of the footage that I mean it's, I was talking again to somebody yesterday, the 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 way that the Ukrainian uh, propaganda people 
have adopted social media and done extraordinary things like uh, you know putting putting Ukrainian pop music um, behind remarkable scenes of their artillery and their drones destroying um, Russian armored vehicles. It's it's a very this is a really weird social media war. Yeah, it must be extraordinary to be in one of those uh, tunnels or in a tube station in Kharkiv or something and be following the war in real time mm. or even better, um, almost real time, but with uh, soundtracks. And, and uh, it, must be, it must be quite encouraging to see um, your own side winning in such an immediate and um, visceral way. Mm. Can you imagine, you know- Visceral, can we use the word visceral a bit more too? That's an excellent word. Yeah, it's good. Simon Sharma, Sharma, the historian, used one of my favorite words in a story the other day, otios. What does it mean? I don't know that. Oh, it means otios, Bernard. I'm just gonna have to look it up. (laughs) Keep talking while I look it up. I'll Google it, I'll Google it. And the Ukrainians (laughs) are really winning that sort of um, war of the internet by a long shot. Uh, and you can see that, um, I mean, didn't get covered a lot here this week, but Ukraine's win in the Eurovision Song Contest is, um, is an interesting song. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, I, I can see what you're saying about how there, is a fra- there might be a fracturing of support for Ukraine. But on the other hand, it is um, the support for the Ukrainians themselves, uh, particularly because... It seems at the moment all we have to do is send them a bunch of weapons and they're the ones who mm. st- stand in front of the tank and fire it. So yeah, we we're gonna, have... there's, there's a very good expression for that, which, is, which we're going to fight the Russians to the last Ukrainian. <laughs> Sorry, that's horrible. <laughs> uh, serving no practical purpose or result. That, that is yeah. excellent, yes. Um, yeah, and but one of the other bits of footage that I put into that spinach thing, thing is, again, one of the... Because I, I, uh, I used to be able to have a sort of uh, fever dream when I was a little boy, and it involved the um, Stalin's, Stalin's organ, the, the, those amazing Russian uh, multiple launch rocket systems, yeah. which went sort of whoosh, 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 whoosh. And I just, I, for some reason, that stuck in my head when I was a kid, from probably from watching too much of the world at war. And there is footage this week of um, grad mul- multiple launch rocket systems firing incendiary weapons into the Azov-style steelworks. And it really looks like the 5th of July or New, New Year's Eve in Sydney. It is absolutely one of the most harrowing things you can possibly imagine of just fire raining down on the entire steelworks at, at, um, um, in Mariupol. Yeah. Now, you, you do wonder what this is all doing to the mental health of the world, all watching it all at once on their phones all the time um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, yeah. Um, and then we got the monkeypox. Have you heard about this? I have. I have. I do know about the monkeypox. Yes, I have seen that, and, and it's, it makes for some excellent pictures, which are, which you know reminded me of some of the sort of leprosy pictures that we used to see, or the one we talked about recently, Hydatids. Hydatids. Some very ugly pictures of people with um with monkeypox. Yes. Ah, Hydatids. I actually, as a kid growing up on a dairy farm, was completely scared witless by. Because um, back in the 70s, there was the uh, local dog control board where there was a particular piece at the end of our road. Where Did you say had... dogging control? No, no, dog control. <laughs> right. And anything, anything's possible in matter matter. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge. Uh, but also, in this case, it was um, uh, Galatea. But, um, yeah, Hydatids was something we were all scared witless of. The dairy exporter used to have some very... Um, scary articles about 
I did. It's that I used to read. Um, but, you know, when you've got climate change and um, globalization, the sort of zoonotic diseases problem becomes something that, you know, we all have to build into our spreadsheets full of black swans. But what about the Australian elections? ScoMo's oh, going yes. to do it, isn't he? The butcher, the butcher versus the builder? Well, the polling looked pretty promising for Labor about four or five days ago. They had about four percentage points in the two-party preferred um, uh, measure because they have this um, single transferable vote type or no preferential voting system in, uh, in Australia, which means that uh, in the, you know, um, raw uh, support, you can be well ahead of the second guy, but if a whole bunch of your opponents shuffle their votes together and put it into the second guy, you can lose. And at the, before the last election, Labour were also slightly ahead and lost. Now, one of the things I think is different this time around, and I put it into uh, one of my dawn choruses last week, is that ScoMo uh, is really, really unpopular with a whole bunch of suburban women. So, I, was about to, I was about to say that. I mean, there's, there's a friend of mine posted a re remarkable thing about some of the things he's said about women over the years, and it is pretty, pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and he might a, be a little bit sexist, I think, and possibly yeah. a little bit conservative. Yeah, and there's a particular example, a story which most people in New Zealand haven't heard of, of a Liberal Party staffer called Brittany Higgins, who, um, after a, a party, uh, was uh, essentially raped by a colleague in her office in Canberra. She reported it to her boss. Uh, and then there was a very um, messy and painful and ugly, I wouldn't call it a cover-up, but um, a very poor treatment of uh, her by her staffers. And the way that um, Scott Morrison handled it was, was also ugly. And almost immediately at that point, the gap opened up in terms of people saying, I don't want to vote for ScoMo anymore. And what's interesting this time around compared to the last election is that this time around, there is an enormous number of rich people who are formerly Liberal Party supporters who are really concerned about climate change and also don't love uh, that ScoMo's the um, archetype of a sexist uh, Australian and are um, voting for these teal candidates. Have you heard of these? No, so I, haven't, I haven't heard of you because Al Albanese just see seems to me to have no particular personality at all, no charisma. Albanese, yeah, he is um, he is a, one of these uh, Labour Party apparatchiks, former union guy. He's no Bob Hawke. He's no Paul, Paul Keating. And uh, if he does get in, it'll be because people hate ScoMo more than they know Albanese. And uh, the Teal candidates are interesting because um, it is a first-past-the-post system in Parliament. It's a preferential voting system to win seats. But um, if, you can, if you can flip a couple of safe seats and put independence in them, you can cause all sorts of drama in the Australian system. And it looks like four or five of the key safe liberal blue-ribbon seats in Sydney and Melbourne could flip to these Teal candidates. So they're often highly um, uh, effective, appealing, competent, professional women who are out there saying, um, you know, I'm a conservative, but I just can't stand the crazy climate change 
sexism of Scott Morrison, vote for me and I'll make sure we start treating climate change seriously and that we, you know, uh, yeah, start... There's to... a thinking person's Pauline Hanson. Yeah, well, <laughs> the absolute opposite of Pauline Hanson. Oh, my goodness. Um, and... Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, there was a very interesting analysis done in the Australian Financial Review uh, last week, which did a, did a piece of great piece of data journalism, where they looked at the um, revealed preferences of voters by booth in the various states and seats in Australia, and then matched them up with the um, house, house value records to see uh, uh, who was most likely to vote Labour or Liberal, depending on the value of their home, which is sort of one way to do it. And they worked out that um, wealthy women who were homeowners in some of these wealthier suburbs were going to crush the Liberals. So I think there is a chance that Labour could just get over the line with the help of some of these uh, blue ribbon seats in the big cities being flipped by the Teals. But no, I think it's really interesting, just thinking about what some of the people are saying in the chat, and we seem to have a you know a couple of you know unreconstructed socialists and, the, and a couple of national voters in there as well, all, all going at each other, um, which is great. So we're, a, we're yeah yeah we, we welcome we're, we're everyone. We're a Catholic with a small C group. But, um, what I mentioned, you know, was were people tired of Labour's political correctness, and I think we can we should perhaps do an entire session on woke and political correctness and progressivism because I was still discussing this with somebody yesterday that. You know, we, we need to reclaim the idea of being progressive and of positive change and of not ratcheting back to Ches and Dale and, and, and Philip Sherry. Not that there's anything going wrong with back with Philip Sherry, but, you know, we don't want to go backwards, do we? You know, was there some No, other, no, I think there is, there is another way to go forward. And, um, you know, and you see it in all sorts of places in, in New Zealand. Um, what I find fun doing is because I don't get out of the house much anymore. Um, I like watching the crowds at televised sports matches to see who's actually in, in the crowd and what they're doing. And what's interesting about watching uh, rugby and cricket uh, in New Zealand in the last decade or so is the changing faces in the crowd, in that there are enormous numbers of obviously um, uh, relatively new migrants from all sorts of places, the Pacific, from China, from India, who are mad supporters of the All Blacks, but also mad supporters of the cricket team. So this is one of the great sort of untold yeah. stories of the of the sort of commercial sport market in New Zealand is that cricket has gone off in a big way, also women's cricket, in part because um, we've had this very high migration rate, particularly from people from India. And so they're all mad for cricket anyway. Um, so they can support the Indian team and the New Zealand team at the same time. And I think uh, when you look at, for example, the way that Māori culture has been incorporated into our moments of national celebration or of, um, you know, it's pretty rare these days to see a, a funeral covered of even a, like someone who died in a car accident, a young kid at a, at a high school, where there isn't a haka, a, yeah, a, haka, that, a haka that's performed um, spon spontaneously. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things going on in New Zealand that are forward-looking. Um, and I, I really hope we don't get bogged down into this sort of uh, quite doctrinaire and sort of tedious 
Twitter style, you know, I'm in yeah, my camp, I mean, you're in your camp. I, I was thinking about this, Bernard, with, uh, for some reason, just hearing you talk about this and, and talking about reclaiming the idea of being progressive, being fair, being reasonable, giving people a fair go. I was thinking about this. There was a wonderful uh, sculpture in the Auckland Art Gallery um, in that fa fabulous uh, exhibition that was, I think, last year um, curated curated by a Maori um, curator and it was featuring um, Maori artists. And there was a uh, Michael Parakofi statue mm. Mm. of a of a Maori guy in a dinner suit with "My name is Hori" written on yeah. it as his as his mm. you know hello label. I don't want to go back to that era when we used words like that, 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 that mm. um, you know, were a slur, just we, and we did it routinely. That's what so many people think of when they think about, they think about political correctness is their right to diminish other people, he said, sounding a bit socialist and politically correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there, is, there are ways forward, and there's some interesting um, people who are doing things culturally uh, and also still in politics where you... You see, for example, Christopher Luxon has been a lot more um, progressive, actually, on this than, for example, Judith Collins. And you see these often these really interesting moments of TV coverage of national party events in provincial areas. And there was one really interesting one when Simon Bridges was just finishing as national party leader, I think, in Tauranga, where he, where there was a, it was a national party audience. The Bridges or someone else was there introducing the national party candidate, and um, and started the introduction with uh, a meeting, and and was booed by the audience, and of course there are a whole bunch of people in the audience going, "What are you doing? This is awful. This is ugly. This feels horribly wrong and mean." And of course, it you know it became a um, a clip that got showed on the news. Oh, look at all those those blue rinsed. Um, Are on the racists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I think the National Party know they've got a particular problem here. That um, even and particularly amongst young people, in that um, this doesn't uh, this whole sort of. Um, you know, um, don't call New Zealand Aotearoa. You know, that's we're New Zealand. You can't call us Aotearoa. And I still get emails from people saying, you, you know, this is New Zealand. It's not Aotearoa. Um, well, I had a good a good one on that the other day. Mary Ellen, our, our mutual friend Bernard, was um, saying that she'd described to a neighbour of hers uh, a lovely piwaka waka, mm. and he said, I don't know what that is. Do you mean a fantail? And then yeah. I thought, do you think he took calls a Tui, a, a Parsons, Parsons exactly. bird as well? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think there's a lot changing, and I think we're in a, a much better position than we could be. And I think that some of the grown-ups in the political um, debate are uh, there. I mean, I think Judith Collins was a particular problem. Christopher Luxon, for example, says he wants to learn today. I mean, that's that's really interesting. Uh and I think that um, he, he might have to learn to be a, be the leader of the opposition first. Oh well, he's so he far used to run an airline though. Yeah, well, he is ahead in the polls um, by a long shot. And the last poll that we got out over the last weekend from Curia said that National One Act could govern alone. And I think that's one of the pieces of news out of this budget is that Labor are worried enough about being behind in the polls that they came up at the last minute with the block of cheese um, payout. And uh, Treasury, of course, uh, did their ideological burp and came out and said, you can't do that. And I just say, 
Can I just say that is an incredibly good elliptical segue back to the beginning of our to the top of you know to the top of the show, Bernard. <laughs> let, let me just ask John Buxton in the in the in the questions has said, and I and I think I have an answer to this, but and I don't think it's a conspiracy. Which is why, why isn't mainstream media, TV and Z, TV three, media works not raising with government and opposition the need to spend uh, two hundred billion on failing infrastructure? I have yeah. a, my, my. You tell me what your answer is, and then I'll tell you mine. Well. I think they are allowing those voices to be heard. And I'll give you the personal example. So in the last week, I have done interviews on TVNZ's Q&A, on the project, uh, this morning on Breakfast, and uh, I also did a thing with the spin-off, in which basically that's all I say. Um, uh, and it gets a lot of traction. Uh, and... There are people saying this thing. One of the thing I one of the things I think that um, John is talking about there is where are the new ideas coming from, which seem radical. And in our system of politics, we're under NMP and also just the the modern version of politics, which is quite conservative, very low target, always the fast follower. You never go out there with a big hairy idea. You let someone else do it first to make it acceptable and then you then you grab it later. Well isn't isn't that David Seymour's role? To yes, say the unacceptable and then all of a sudden it becomes acceptable. Exactly. He's like the guy who goes over the goes over the top, over the parapet and gets shot first. And then you walk over his body. Um, and uh, in New Zealand, because we don't have that uh, ecosystem of think tanks around the edges, like in this in the UK. On the right and on the left, there are really big, strong, well-funded think tanks, right? In New Zealand, all we've got is a New Zealand initiative, which is, you know, uh, rightish, libertarian, government, uh, business-funded. But not, but not, as, not, as, not as rabid as the New Zealand Taxpayers Association, right? True. So you're right. You've got two on the right there having a go every day. Whereas on the left, um, not well-organized, not well-funded, and are only now starting to get some traction. So Helen Clark's um, Helen Clark Foundation, which is connected to the Auckland University, is doing some interesting uh, things and starting to come up with some new ideas and new research. But it's taken a while. And um, one of the roles I see myself fulfilling, thanks to the support of all of those subscribers, is to actually say things that are unacceptable. <laughs> I suppose you could say in in um, conventional um, uh, places and uh, get it into the mainstream. Try yeah, and I agree, I agree open, open up I, I, I just, open up the Overton window and yeah. uh, you know make it make it something that's a real debate. And it's yeah, I think it's I, sort I, of working. Right. And funny enough, I think the platform is doing some of that as well. I mean, it, it knows which buttons to press, but it's and, and KP makes the point that David Seymour does in fact have have some interesting ideas. And I know I mock him a little bit because he's so easily mocked. But you know, the, the, this is a battle of ideas, and we do need to need to hear them all. The but also take them out. So my my view on that media thing in New Zealand is that there just aren't there aren't enough deeply thoughtful news editors. And there aren't enough deeply thoughtful political correspondents other than you, Patrick Smelly, uh, Joe Moyer, I think probably at news desk, uh, newsroom, who are considering the bigger questions as opposed to that week's poll or yeah. uh, that week's soundbite. And it's, and it's, you know, they're partly being driven by immediacy and particularly TV, the pressure for, for images. But we need people like you to actually ask the questions 
and explain. And I'll, let me let me actually segue slightly on that one. Is that this week we lost Brian Gaynor from Business Desk yeah. from uh, yeah. um, died very suddenly. Um, you know what an extraordinary person he's been in over the last you know forty years in both building a remarkable business, but also being a very serious, considered commentator on, um, you know, sacred cows. And as they say, sacred cows make this. Yes, um, it is. It was a complete shock to everyone in the sort of business journalism community, but also in the investment um, scene. Because as you say, he's one of these rare characters who not only was one of the commentators that everyone felt like they had to read, but also he ended up building one of the biggest fund managers in the country. And actually behind the scenes was heavily involved in the creation of the KiwiSaver concept and also the New Zealand Super Fund. And uh, if there was one person who you could argue was the um, driving force or the big idea behind a, a real change in New Zealand society in the last 20 or 30 years is Brian Gaynor, simply in the way that he made investing in uh, uh, pension funds and in uh, KiwiSaver funds something that you know millions now millions of New Zealanders yeah, and do. He also he also campaigned very effectively. In, in the sense of being a campaigning journalist for transparency, you know, he he called out the, the weaknesses in the New Zealand stock exchange regulation, uh, the cosy the coziness between the three large investment banks in New Zealand. Um, you know, he he was he was quite good at uh, tackling some of the shibboleths. But you know, I I had a coffee with him just before I left New Zealand because I wanted really? his advice about um, uh, bringing some money back into New Zealand and where to invest and what to do. And you know, he was a charming and thoughtful. Uh, somewhat irascible sometimes guy and I you know to, to, to see him gone out is and also he did a fantastic job with Patrick and the others and um well that's in the, other thing creating all, the modern business desk exactly um, I mean I'm I'm uh, in being involved in trying to create um, business news organizations economic news organizations for the last decade I know how hard it is I also know how important his uh, investment and involvement in business desk was uh, how much of an achievement um, business desk is with the um, combination of Patrick and Brian and uh, in many ways they'd only just reached the summit and they hadn't had a chance to take in the view. You're a poet. You're a yeah. poet not a journalist. That's a very nice line. But we, we were going to have the skateboarding dog being George Bush. Yes I think that's who, a good good way to finish yeah. Uh, you know, who, who rather marvellously talked about the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. But, I mean, Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, oh, my thinking, goodness. You couldn't, I, when, I, when I first heard it yesterday, I was thinking it had to be one of those kind of Saturday Night Live things. No, or that it's some sort of, you know, AI um, piece of um, fake news where someone had spliced together a piece of um, footage to make it look like that, but he actually said it. Boy. All right, my my friend is doing the dishes here, and everybody started to complain. Oh so yeah, I will yeah, see. Yeah. We so, we better sign off, shall we? Yes. Hey everyone, thank you very much for joining us on the weekly hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey. Uh, you've been also with Peter Bale. Kakita, I know we'll see you. Can you call week. me? Could you call me your um, co-host again, please, Bernard? Because I really like co co-host. Yes, co-host Peter Bale in sunny London. Thank you, Bernard. See you. See you later. Catch you later. Bye-bye.